2023 is the 10th anniversary of the Advanced Proportion Centre. Some of the achievements of the past 10 years were celebrated at this year's Senex Low Carbon Vehicle and Senex Connected Automated Mobility Show at UTAC Millbrook Proving Ground. Following a series of presentations from key stakeholders showcasing some of the milestones achieved in the last decade, we asked them to join a panel discussion looking forward to the decade ahead. With the 2035 deadline fast approaching, how well positioned is the UK automotive sector to deal with the challenges and opportunities ahead? Joining the discussion are Richard Kenworthy, Managing Director at Toyota Motor Manufacturing UK, Joe Bray, the Deputy Director of the Automotive Unit at the Department for Business and Trade, Andy Eastlake, the CEO of the Zemo Partnership, Rick Adams, Innovation Delivery Director at the Advanced Propulsion Centre, and Colin Garner, Professor of Applied Thermodynamics at Loughborough University. So here's the panel discussion. I hope you find it insightful. Thank you everybody for coming along to celebrate 10 years of the innovation at the Advanced Propulsion Centre. And so what we've heard from the presentations is what's been happening over the last 10 years and some of the key achievements. In this session, what we want to do is get the crystal ball out and look to the decade ahead. So we've got 2030 and 2035, and 10 years ahead is going to fall between those two quite critical timelines. So if we just have a think about how competitive the UK is going to be within the global marketplace for low-carbon propulsion vehicles, perhaps I could start with you, Richard, in terms of what's the vision like in 10 years' time? Where are we going to be? How competitive is the UK going to be in the, in the global marketplace? The starting point uh, Colin talked about is about people capability and our engineering. Uh, and honestly, I think the unique selling point compared to other Toyota plants globally is that link between research, transferred technology. But in reality, no one really knows where we're going to land. We know we've got to decarbonise and battery, plug-in hybrid, hydrogen combustion, fuel cell. These are all unique challenges. Now, which, where we land, we don't know. Yeah, people will study each one of them and we will go. And at the end of the day, those which are sustainable, which are practical, they will come through. The thing that gives the UK its competitive advantage is that link, that capability of our people. So the thing that makes a difference from our point of view is that link that's generated through APC, through our research and development. Also our people in terms of education. So one of the things people said to me while we're doing the Hilux is, okay, but what's the big thing for you? You don't know what the products, we're gonna do the product, you might not take it to market, and that's right. But the fact is, is we could bring together APC, Ricardo, our other partners, with some outstanding people within our plant, and therefore we could produce the product. And we're gonna do that more and more and more, because no one really knows where this future is gonna be. And, you know, people talk about it, but honestly, we generally believe that a multi-technology approach is the way we're going to decarbonise as quickly as we possibly can. So it seems like that's a particular challenge for an OEM, the scale of Toyota, because we're talking about agility. Yeah. If we don't know where we're going and it's only 10 years out. Yeah. We've got to move fast. That's very difficult for a large organisation. Yeah. What, what do you need to support that level of agility that's big OEMs that are the, the bedrock of 
UK automotive manufacturing? How do, how do we help you guys be successful? It's interesting. So it's about networks. Yeah. So in some respects, we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. So we have an idea. You know, working with Ricardo, working with APC, working with DBT, we're getting access to information that we wouldn't necessarily know. And from that point of view, then we're better placed to try things, try solutions more quickly and explore them. And I think that's one of the strengths that we have within the UK. I guess you could think about it like a pest analysis, political, economic, social, technological. So Joe, how does government provide certainty for OEMs of the scale of Toyota to keep those investments and innovations in the UK? What, what, what can you do to help? As you said, government has its role to play in helping this huge transition. And there are a number of ways in which government can do this. The first is through support, both financially and in other ways, um, because this is such a huge revolutionary transition and it affects all parts of the transport sector and the supply chains. We're, you know, companies are trying to build brand new supply chains. And in the case of OEMs, they're either trying to transition out of existing supply chains into brand new ones. And then you've got new startups coming in and trying to establish something from scratch. So they both have different challenges. So government can help with some of that through financial support. And as I've explained previously, through things like the Automotive Transformation Fund, where there is money on offer for companies to apply for to help build those supply chains. And then, of course, in other ways, government can help is providing those regulatory structures and standards, both to sort of set the, the standards so that companies know the standards to build the vehicles to, um, but also regulation to help provide that push into establishing those supply chains. Andy, I guess you've got quite a macro view of this. You've been doing this, Zemo have been doing this for, for 20 years, beyond the election cycles. So you've got, you've got the, probably one of the best macro views. What's, what's your view on, I guess, that future vision and, and how we get there? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think we're at almost the same seminal point in our industry that we were 20 years ago when CBP Zemo was first created. It was very much a, a sort of moment in time for the automotive industry and a moment in time for the, the agenda. That was the low carbon agenda. We were, this, is, this predates the Committee on Climate, the Climate Change Act, uh, but we had that agenda coming. And we've now got a new agenda, net zero, which is legislative. And I would say that transcends any political machinations. You know, there's, a, there's broad agreement with the net zero agenda. But we've got that challenge of stimulating a new automotive industry. It, it is going to be a change in the automotive industry, the, the like we've never seen before. I think, uh, I think it's a really exciting time, a really challenging time. I think one of the things, and, and, and we're very quick to beat ourselves over the head, and the, the, the UK British are very good at uh, self-flagellation in that respect, but actually there's a huge amount of success, there's a huge amount that we can be proud of. One of the things that I would say that is great from our government's perspective and that the UK does well is talk to each other. We, we listen to, we've got these collaborative organisations, so not only is it, is it actually the funding, but more importantly, it's getting the policy makers to listen and understand the challenges of the different sectors. Uh, I think there was one person missing from Colin's charts, or one primary perk, which was the user. 
there was a lot of focus, and, and we spoke about this, the, 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 the technology. The technology is only as good as what you can sell. And this, I think, comes back to some of Richard's points. We don't know the solutions, all of them. We've got some pretty good ideas, and we've, got, uh, we've certainly got some media views on what will and won't work. Um, but actually, everything has to have an opportunity. But then we've got to bring the users with us and understand what they really need and want. And those may not be the same thing. Uh, so, so a lot of consumers want something in their car that they don't necessarily need. Uh, and there may be a part of that education. So that's where I think we've moved from this situation where it's just about developing a product and, and if you like selling it, we're now trying to change behavior. So it's a far more complex environment, far more exciting, far more opportunities, far more innovation, but that's innovation everywhere. And I would say that's the measure of the next decade is, is it's not just about the product, it's about the whole ecosystem and the whole usage, energy, mobility within that. Lots to grapple with. Yeah, no, I, I, I can see there's lots of different ways I, I, I want to go here. But I, I guess one of them, and is, is a key point, is there's some manu manufacturers like Tes Tesla, obviously, that have just gone all in battery electric vehicles. Richard Toyota's not doing that, staying much more agnostic, developing other industries. Um, I guess, Rick, from the APC point of view, does that create challenges because you're trying to develop supply chains, technology, scale up things, not exactly in a vacuum, but it, it, it's, it's very difficult to see who's going to be the winners. And to some extent, you can create the winner by just forcing it through, like I think Tesla have been able to do with their, their vehicles. Yeah, I mean, for sure. But you know, one of the things the APC has, has always been is technology agnostic for us. As I said, and you know, as I shamelessly stole, you didn't see that from Toyota. The diversity piece is is absolutely critical. So, we've never really wanted to champion one piece of technology over another. So, so yes, perhaps you could consider that spreads us and industry quite thin. But actually, it doesn't because the breadth and depth of industry within the UK, particularly in the startup and SME areas that can really help these OEMs to be agile and dynamic and to deliver these solutions is so great. You know, that ecosystem we've all nurtured creates the ability to look at all these technologies with almost equal eyes because, you know, we've got companies who are innovating across that whole breadth of them. So, of course, everything's a challenge, but actually I don't think that agnostic technology view is a real problem for us in the UK. Does there come a point, though, where you've got to throw your hat into one fight? You've got to make a stand and say, right, we've got to become the global leader in this because of economies of scale and things like that? Uh, no. <laughs> it would be my, my sort of simple answer. And the reason is that there's not a single technology which works for every application. The great thing about the hydrogen offering, perhaps, is it's really good at high load and towing and weights and large vehicles. But... It's not so good for small city cars where a BEV might be perfect, right? So I think we've got to consider that there's solutions for different applications. And I think by throwing our hat into any one ring within the UK would potentially actually limit our ability to compete on a, a global scale. But do we need to pick a fight to win? Do we need to narrow down? Do we have to pick a market segment or a... I'll, I'll leave that open, actually. Andy, do you? Yeah, I, th I think 
what we could do is be a little bit clearer about what we're trying to achieve. So net zero is relatively clear, but at the moment that is manifesting itself as zero emissions at the tailpipe. So we're not currently regulating or assessing the embedded carbon or indeed ultimately the well to wheel. So there are aspects of those vehicles which come into things like energy efficiency and resource efficiency. The, the OEMs I know are looking at this, so you know this is not this is not new. But and the APC and, and my, my team and, and Philippa, we've we've talked about life cycle analysis, but it's not within regulation at the moment. At the moment, the regulation, if you like, stops at the tailpipe. And there used to be a, a, f a focus on energy efficiency through the CO2 regulations because everybody ran petrol diesel vehicles. There isn't a focus now. There isn't a mandate for energy efficiency. So you can build a really really inefficient vehicle whether that's hydrogen electricity or whatever and it's still zero tailpipe and there isn't the two other than cost at the moment so i think we could be better and have a more comprehensive assessment of what good looks like that would help steer us a bit the horses for courses as, as rick was sort of saying there are there are applications that are right for one technology e-fuels you can criticize them on the energy efficiency but they actually may well be the, the optimum solution for some applications and there's, a, there's, a, there's an acceptance that aviation is likely to end up in that space. So defining what better means in a few more parameters than just zero at the tailpipe, which is where we are at the moment. Uh, lots of benefits of that, air quality, all of the other things that we want, but it, it leaves a few open doors for other, other aspects. And I think that's something that we probably are all trying to take forward at the right pace. And the pace of life cycle analysis uh, is one that we need to be tread carefully with. Uh. I almost want to come back to the idea of do we need a roadmap or do we let the market decide? You know, do we try a few things and see which fire starts off? But I want to jump in because um, I think it was Richard talking about, I was talking about innovation and, and agility. And I think that is a key skill that the UK have is the innovation. And then it's how do we scale quickly? Colin, do you want to jump in about innovation and the, and the UK's expertise in, in creating things that have never existed before. Yeah, okay, so the UK is without doubt has innovated a lot of things. I mean, the Industrial Revolution started in the, in the UK. So we inherently do that. It's part of our DNA, really. But in recent decades, the thing that's driven it more than anything is regulation. So whether it's been emissions regulations, quite likely brought down emissions enormously. And we've got changes now with regulations regarding the type of energy that you can carry on the vehicle, and that's profoundly changing things. So in that space, what we've actually seen in reality is, is the ecosystem being actually very, very agile. It's changed very quickly. People have invested in, in new uh, test facilities, different ways of manufacturing it at unprecedented speed in the last 10 years. So I think really the and, and the big thing that's going to change things in the future is how does regulation change again? I think another factor is, I think it's worth picking up some of the points earlier, is, is that we're not, we're not building technologies primarily for the UK. We're exporting 85% of these things, and they're going to help decarbonize and help reduce emissions globally. So we're not developing them for here. So we, it might be that there's technologies that may not be suitable for this country, but they're highly suitable elsewhere, and we can get a lot of revenue, a lot of high-value jobs, a lot of value out of it, and the globe would, would gain. How about scaling? Because that's, 
that's the hard bit. And I get who. Well, who well, that, do, do you want to jump in? It's really the manufacturing there. people, like you know, Richard and others. I mean, I, I, I'm not a manufacturing engineer because it's difficult. <laughs> I, I do the easy bits where we just do, you know, the odd few prototypes and we make make the product. But manufacturing is very tough. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the chart I put up earlier with the curves, I mean, you may have noticed the top section just said this is hard. I've, as I said, I've been six weeks in the APC and before that I've spent the rest of my career in product development in the UK. That scale up piece is exceptionally difficult, not just financially. I mean, financially it is very difficult. You know, there's a lot of capital potentially required, but the understanding of how to truly commercialize our innovations is very difficult because as soon as you get past making a hundred or maybe a thousand of something, it, the cost impact of every inefficiency really stacks up. I mean, Toyota knows that better than anybody. I mean, you invented how to fix it, but, but it's still really difficult. So that, as I said in, in you know, my presentation earlier, I think that's really, for, for me, the next 10 years has to focus on that scaling piece as well as generating new innovation. Because if we don't scale it, we don't put product on the road and we don't achieve our CO2 reduction. So yeah, I think that's, that has to be a key focus. So how do we teach businesses to scale? Do we rely on OEMs like Toyota to kind of turn the super tanker and, and do something new? Or do we create new mini JCBs that become JCBs and Jaguar Land Rovers and, and, and accelerate what took 50 years and try and do it in five? Uh, you know, and at, at the risk of capitalizing the time here, I, you know, actually I think for the APC, that is one of the key focuses we will have as we move forward is we've provided over the last decade huge amounts of engineering and technical support to businesses to help their innovation. If you look at our TDAP product, we really help startups with the business side of it, but at the very start. And perhaps what we need to look at is how we can apply our knowledge and expertise and crowd in industry and government expertise to help more businesses to achieve this, but further up that development scale, if that makes sense. And Colin touched on exports, Department for Business and Trade. What's the government view on this uh, low carbon propulsion future and, and how companies like Toyota are gonna be serving other markets? How are you helping? What's the vision? What's the thinking in government? As we've said, the bulk of automotive manufacturing is actually exported. It's about 85% of what we make is exported. So as you know, there's a program of both free trade agreements underway, uh, something our Secretary of State sets great store by, and there are also things like bilateral agreements working in partnership with other countries. For example, one of the things that is occupying minds now and will continue to do so are the critical raw materials for these technologies so the commodity chemicals for for batteries producing hydrogen other raw materials some of them are quite exotic and in short supply and also concentrated in particular areas of the world so 
one of the things government has done is putting together a critical mineral strategy and a keystone of that is working with other countries in partnership uh, you know working together as we said this is a global business this is also a global challenge both in terms of managing climate change um, but also mobility, mobility of, of citizens to, to, to go about their lives. So it's a global challenge and it's about working, working in partnership. So I think there's good awareness broadly amongst the public about battery electric vehicles, something we should touch on, like today we've seen the unveiling of the hydrogen fuel cell Toyota Hilux. Just an open question to anybody who wants to start about other technologies and that the UK could become leaders in and, and where they fit into the portfolio of solutions? I mean, I think uh, from our perspective, the, the renewable fuel sector, we have some of the best regulations around making sure our existing renewable fuels are sustainable. Uh, and there's, there's government support going in right now to look at um, uh, sustainable aviation fuels, money announced, I think it was yesterday, some more around that. So. We are going to have to still burn some hydrocarbon fuels in some vehicles in some instances. The technology, you know, we, we oil and gas, we're some great innovators in some of that space, so we've got opportunities there. So I think that's definitely an opportunity for us to continue to, to if you like, repurpose some of our oil and gas expertise into renewable hydrocarbon where necessary. So I think that's definitely a, a, a big opportunity for us. I think we're also... Uh, I, I remember, and it's, it's George Gillespie's quote actually, so I, I will credit him with it. We are world class at congestion as well. So, thinking about smaller, lighter vehicles, thinking about uh, how we make mobility more efficient in terms of the road space, we've got an opportunity to really do that sort of thing as well, I would say. And we are excellent thinkers, really, really good thinkers, and you know, excellent engineers approaching challenges. It's defining those challenges that's the real, the real art here and then letting the creative people address those challenges with the right parameters around them. So, yeah, I think there's, there's lots and lots of opportunities for us in terms of being innovative, you know, leaders in innovation on that. I will leave it, to, I'll defer to others in terms of the manufacturing and the, the industrial uh, leadership. Yeah, certainly, Richard, uh, you've obviously got the hydrogen fuel cell Hilux that's been announced, but that's not all Toyota's looking at. You've got a very... You're almost swimming against the tide in terms of there's a lot of what you might call Bev evangelists that if it's not battery electric, it's, it's not the right answer. Uh, what, what's Toyota, Toyota's thinking over the next 10 years? How much can you tell us about what the next 10 years is likely to look like? Um, battery. Battery's part of our portfolio. Outside, got BZ4X, RZ4X. You can buy a battery car. Toyota's been there. If you, if you really want to go back, hybrid was the first car to use a battery, really. It just did it. And it was a smaller use of minerals and reduces CO2 and reduces or improves efficiency. So what do we think the future is? We think the future is battery electric. We think it's hybrid, maybe not in Europe, but the whole of the globe has to decarbonize. So is it practical or pragmatic to expect a charge in infrastructure in rural Africa, I'm not so sure, yeah? So therefore we think about that. Plug-in hybrid, we think that's also a solution in terms of for five days a week, most of us travel more, no more than 20 or 30 miles. You are using a battery which is the course of the size 
and then maybe you go somewhere f further, longer distance of the weekend, and that's when you'd start to do it. But again, it doesn't need the same level of charging infrastructure. Fuel cell, we've talked about. A fuel cell, hydrogen, um, the energy density in hydrogen is um, almost the same as petrol. So therefore you get, so where you have, we've seen outside buses, refuse trucks, fire engines, ambulances, mountain rescue, these type of people, they're not going to have access to a, a plug. Yeah, or they're going to, it's going to stand there for five hours fighting a fire. The batteries aren't big enough. And then in terms of trucks. But the other side of it is recognizing the density of hydrogen or energy density, this hydrogen combustion. Yeah. You know, my, my neighbours in JCB, they're doing a fantastic job in terms of hydrogen, um, in terms of hydrogen combustion. Toyota is racing a hydrogen combustion vehicle now in terms of that. All of them, all of them deliver zero emissions. Yeah, give or take. It's then about what's the appropriate one for which customer, I'm sorry, and biofuels as well. Yeah, all of them deliver zero emissions. Our point is that is what it's about. The challenges we've got, you talk about, about scaling up. We have to scale up to get the cost down. We have to innovate new technologies and we have to scale up to get the cost down. And then maybe we take everybody with us because the risk is we produce products which are beautifully technical, but maybe society can't afford them. Just one that I've always wondered, I, I like the hybrid model in terms of most of the time you want a small battery, batteries are expensive, you've got the whole supply chain issues around that. What about low carbon range extenders, a biomethane range extender or a synthetic fuel range or a hydrogen range extender rather than petrol diesel? Is that something that's being looked at? JCB asked me about that one time and I said, oh, I don't think we're doing anything. The next week we announced hydrogen combustion. I, I'm, so I, so I'm not aware. If I go to Japan, they're getting attacked in Japan, it's all LNG. And you can imagine that being transferred into biogenerated ethanol from that point of view. I'm not aware, I think, the major things that we're looking at. But again, the point I would say, we're, we're technology agnostic. Our point is, the customer will decide based upon what we're trying to achieve, zero carbon, and whether it works for them in terms of their environment. I think the uh, risk is... Sorry, can I just bring Colin in? In terms of other options, are you aware of anything that's likely to pop out of the research okay. funnel? Well, it normally takes about 20 years for something to go from a government lab or a university lab into something that actually makes money. If you take the Dyson vacuum cleaner, that took 15 years, and it's a great device, but it's only a vacuum cleaner. No disrespect to James Dyson, but, you know, it's a fairly known technology. So... I haven't seen anything I think is going to be a total game changer. I think battery technology is moving at a pace with, with so solid electrolyte type batteries. I think that's going to be really important. I think we're seeing a lot of things on the infrastructure side, and we've touched on this already. You know, if we go back 20, years, 20, 30 years ago, everything was about the car, you know, and it was the assumption that you got diesel or gasoline to go in it. Now it's, all, it's about the infrastructure and the car and the truck and all these different applications to do with fire engines, et cetera, et cetera. And if you take someone like Tesla, for example, you know, they got, they got into the market. They said, well, what is the barrier for people to buy an EV? Well, you need to plug it in. So they built an infrastructure. They invested in that. It's not very extensive, but it's pretty decent. And it gave, certainly people I've talked to, they, it gave them, if you like, permission to themselves to buy it. They thought, yeah, at least I can charge up quickly if I need to. 
So they saw that it's this dual thing. So it's infrastructure and, and the vehicle. So if we then look at the infrastructure and look at the time constants on that, some of the infrastructure isn't going to be available in 20 years. It just, there's just not enough workforce to, to actually have this huge change to implement it. Even if it becomes the energy vector of choice, it just takes time to build. So we've got to build that into our processes as well. So there's time constants, and I think EV is going to be a very dominant um, you know, propulsion, uh, an energy carrier uh, with, with electric motors on, on cars and, and, and trucks, light trucks, short, short range, things like that. Hydrogen may have a role, but I think some of the hydrogen might be used for some of the other application areas of um, decarbonizing steel production and other things. So it may not actually land in the vehicles. So let's see what happens with the infrastructure. If that can change, if e-fuels, if the price comes down to be competitive against the new market, which is going to be you know, charging for CO2, basically, if it, if it works in that space, then that, that could be a solution. There's a lot of new big topics we could touch on here, like battery supply chains. Um, but let's, I just want to stick with that infrastructure point that you've made, because if we need agility, but the infrastructure is going to take decades, it kind of kills the agility. You know, however much the market wants it, but you can't refuel with hydrogen or you can't charge with electricity. Well, one of the good things about EVs is that most houses and most buildings do have electricity going to it. It's pretty rare that you don't have any electricity. So you can get some form of charging. You know. Does that inevitably mean that battery it, electrics... Well, that, I think that's going mean, to be the dominant. Yeah, I, I think that's going to dominate because at the moment you... you that's about what you can do other than gasoline or diesel or some other type of fuel, LNG, whatever, you know. But again, that's going to take time to get to the levels we need. We, you know, we need gigawatts of power. We need tens of, you know, megawatt charging rates, and that's an enormous amount of current. And the infrastructure can't do that yet. Is that a challenge for government, Joe, the infrastructure piece? Who's, who's I mean, Tesla obviously built their infrastructure, but... How does the UK achieve this, these deadlines at 2030-2035 without kind of massive government intervention? There is a role for government as well as industry. Most of the infrastructure is market-led and we've already had the example of the Tesla investment in charging points. Most people will charge their EV at home, but there is a gap in that some people can't do that, people in high-rise flats. Uh, people wanting to charge when out and about and that's where the gov government's role is to fill that gap and colleagues in DFT are working on this where they've put in place uh, the so-called levy fund which I think is over 300 million to put in place charging infrastructure for those people who aren't in a position to charge at home so that's where government is it, again it's the typical market failure intervention so that's where government will be be focusing its energies but yes it's you know it is it's a challenge for all we've said this several times but I, I think it's worth returning to this is a real revolution in our whole transport system we're having to do it relatively swiftly and you know it it, it impacts everybody and at the same time we you know this would be a, a challenge for for any sector, any industrial sector, but having to do that against the background on the back of a global pandemic, 
geopolitical tensions, interruptions in supply chains and changes in, in monetary policy as well. You know, days of low interest rate borrowing, for example, that's shifted a lot and, inf- and you know, the return of high inflation. These are huge mm. challenges to get to grips with on top of producing something slightly revolutionary in the transport sector. There's a few other things I'd like to touch on. Just just an open question about connected automated mobility. I I initially thought it was connected autonomous mobility. We're not just talking about self-driving cars or self-driving vehicles, because that's the other revolution, particularly as AI is accelerating at a pace. Any points anyone wants to bring about connected automated mobility? I I think just uh, if you're not picking up and, and touching on that point, what we're moving from is a, is a, you know, for years we were talking about vehicles and fuels, and I remember working on the auto oil program, trying to get the auto and oil industries to work together. We're now at the spectrum we're working with is effectively mobility at one end and energy at the other end, and the digitalization and the information. One of the things about electrons is that they're really, really fungible. You can move them around, and and with connectivity, you can start managing energy in a way that you couldn't, and managing resources. So, I think connectivity and the, the digital environment is going to be a huge enabler for energy efficiency, for planning where charging goes, shifting energy around, putting resources in the right place, managing congestion. Uh, autonomy, uh, I'm, I'm not an expert on that, and, but I'm, I'm less convinced by how much that's going to increase value for us, but certainly connectivity, which will allow us to work out the mobility to energy and the vehicles and the, the infrastructure, just the tools in the middle of it that kind of make it happen. And I think it's, it's thinking in that bigger picture. And again, I would say that's a, a skill set that the UK has, that we can start to open up this environment. One of the big challenges, and again, just an anecdote, one of the big challenges is matching the investment of the different pieces of the jigsaw. For my sins, I was responsible for putting a hydrogen station in here at, uh, at UTAC 15 years ago that never got used. And the worst thing you can do is put infrastructure in and not use it and not sweat it or put vehicles on the road that can't be filled. So that chicken and egg of, of, of the right energy for the right vehicle is still one of the challenges we face in a number of places. Uh, and we've got to grapple with that. And that's a really tricky one for government to stimulate the pieces at the same pace. So yeah, connectivity and autonomy comes into that. How, how do we, you know, we have one of the best legislative environments to, to test autonomous vehicles. Uh, we, we pride ourselves on that but it's still quite an interesting area as to understand how best to use that capability. Does anybody else want to jump in on? Yeah, if, if I can, you know, um, you know, my colleagues in Zenzec who are, are on the government pavilion are way more versed in, in this topic than perhaps I am, but I think it's really important to consider how it's partly solves the problem. You, you talked earlier, Andy, about how we are experts at congestion, and that's actually perhaps where some of this can come in to help solving those problems. So five, six years ago, everything I worked on was propulsion for these things that looked like toasters that were apparently going to take over the world of of moving people around, right? And some are still around, but not so many. You know, it it was a leap too far, perhaps, in a very short space of time. But it does answer a real problem. These connected, automated vehicles will help to reduce congestion, which ultimately helps to reduce emissions, right? So we have to, to look at it that way. Where we are today with it is probably a lot of early stage work and there's been lots of innovation and we're probably at that turning point of it's really about deployment now. 
We've got lots of great test facilities all across the UK. We need to start putting product on the road in some form and a bit of infrastructure probably and a, and a bit of other support. But that's, I think, where, where we really are. But I would invite people to, to speak to my colleagues from Zenzik to get you know, a really strong uh, understanding of all the businesses because they are supporting so many businesses with government grants just the way that the APC has been doing for the last decade. So there, there is a lot of stimulation there, but for them it's about trying to get it from research to deployment. Uh, so we are running out of time and it, it's, it's a huge topic, but the decarbonisation of the supply chain in terms of we could all make these wonderful low carbon vehicles, but if they're all built with coal power stations and shipped from the other side of the world. And I guess to some extent it does give the UK a competitive advantage to deliver to UK customers and to Europe if things aren't built in perhaps areas with less clean energy and then shipped around the world. So uh, I'll just leave that open again. Richard, you're nodding. Looks like you've got something to say about low carbon supply chains. Because fundamentally it's about carbon. So when I talk with my colleagues, it's about the whole thing. It's about zero emissions or the lowest possible emissions of the tailpipe. It's about getting to good. So I've said, D-side engine plants will be carbon neutral by 2025. We'll be the global first Toyota plant to be carbon neutral. Berniston, every plant in Europe will be carbon neutral by 2030 because we see that as essential. And we'll follow up with our supply chains and then with our suppliers because the supply chain is so much more, it will take us longer. But from the UK point of view, when I benchmark the UK in terms of the energy, the carbon density of our energy, UK PLC has done a fantastic job. I, I look at the graphs and you see from about the middle of the last decade, our, carb, our carbon density has fallen off a cliff. Now, right now, we're paying a bit more for our energy, probably a lot more for our energy than some of my European, but that's because we're down to gas, but that's going to disappear. That's going to disappear because the amount of renewables coming on, online and on grid. Uh, and that, that, that's a competitive advantage for us. So it sounds like there's a potential competitive advantage. I guess the open question is, will consumers pay more for a lower carbon supply chain or do they just want, well, government says I've got to have a, a battery electric car or, or, or whatever. I'll just buy the cheapest. And I, I, I don't know whether that's something I can just put towards Joe in terms of if a lower carbon car produced by Toyota in the UK is more expensive than one that's imported, would government ever balance that? Or maybe that's an unfair question to throw at you, but how do you, will consumers pay more, I guess, for a more expensive car if it's more sustainable, more ethical? I think, this is gonna be a really cop-out answer, it depends. There are people who will actively seek that out. That is an important value for them. So it is worth it to them to pay that extra. I think what government needs to assess, um, and we've seen some of that debate play out over the summer, is whether there are sections of society that are locked out of mobility because of cost if you see what I mean, and making sure that people have access to opportunity and mobility to be able to, to, to do what they need to do. But there will be some people who will be happy to pay a premium 
because that's an imp that's important to them. There'll be others who will be no. It is it is down to bottom line on price, and it's not just in transport that this debate is happening. It's the same with food. Uh, there's a similar debate going on. How much do we? pay for food and again this has been shown in, thro in thrown into sharp relief through recent inflationary changes so you know again i think going bringing bringing this back to what does the next 10 years bring i think from a government's point of view is things we government will have to think about is what are the financial trends what are economic impacts on citizens there's also things like what is the next sort of technology change we've, we've spoken a bit about batteries and also how how does government respond to that what regulatory regulatory landscape do they need to put into place to get us down that desired path i'm also pleased that we've had a few minutes to talk about as well as the product the process because the process is as important in terms of going back to getting to net zero the process is as important and a lot of the work we have been doing with companies is how can they strip carbon out of their, their processes as well as the products so they, they both have equal billing just to add to that i asked the question why should consumers have to pay more for a low carbon vehicle right and for two reasons firstly i come back to the statement i made earlier about making vehicles that are as good as their ice counterparts, the combustion engine counterparts. So most BEVs aren't as good as the engine-based vehicle they replace. That shouldn't be the case. Consumers should have the ability to choose what they compromise on, but they don't necessarily have to pay for a low-carbon manufactured vehicle. The automotive industry has spent years introducing cost engineering to know where all the costs come from in the supply chain. If we can build life cycle analysis, like Andy touched on, into that process, so suppliers and manufacturers can build up models of where the carbon comes from as they're building up their cost models, they can make that judgment. Because ultimately, less carbon should potentially could cost less, right? You just need to make those kind of decisions. But we're, we're not there yet. We don't have the tools, the databases, the, and the drive necessarily to do it. But actually, I don't think we should start from should consumers pay more. We should work from consumers deserve the best product and work back from that, not here's a substandard product, you should pay more for it. And one of the things I'll just throw in is about recycling and end of mm. life. Yeah. You know, probably we haven't been so diligent of how to manage end of life. But now we've got so much money tied up in um, batteries or catalytic inverters. It's about securing all that and making sure it's recyclable. Yeah. And that's one way to reduce the cost. Yeah, that's where the LCA analysis will really help to, to determine that. I can feel another panel discussion coming on for, an, for an, an, another time. Unfortunately, I've got seven seconds left to, if I'm going to try and end on time. So I think at this stage I'll just have to say... I don't know whether we've really unveiled the next 10 years in any, any great detail, but I think we have understood some of the issues, challenges, opportunities, and it actually does feel like the UK is in a pretty good place to capitalise on those opportunities and challenges uh, with the support of APC, government, industry, research, and uh, the, the not-for-profit not sector. So thank you very much to our, our panellists, Andy Eastlake from Zemo, 
Joe Bray from the Department for Business and Trade, Rick Adams from the Advanced Propulsion Centre, Richard Kenworthy from Toyota, and Colin Garner from the University of Loughborough. Thank you very much.